This event was recorded live at the 2019 Edinburgh International Book Festival, a 17-day celebration of words and stories welcoming authors and audiences from around the globe. You can hear more events by subscribing on Apple Podcasts, Spotify or Acast, and watch event videos at edbookfest.co.uk and on YouTube at edbookfest. Hello, hello, hello. Um, sorry. Hello. Um, thank you all so, so much for coming out uh, this evening. An enormous, packed, sold-out crowd. My name is Jenny Lindsay. I'm going to be chairing the discussion with Lem shortly. But before we start, a little uh, bit of a sort of introduction and all the boring bits that I get to do so you can enjoy our wonderful, charismatic author. Um, if you've got any electronic devices, please do make sure that they are switched to silence. So phones, Tamagotchis, those kind of things. Make sure that you do that. Um, also, the way that the event's going to run is I'm shortly going to get a huge, rapturous round of applause for our author. Then we're going to have a, a discussion, a bit of a reading from the book. There will be time for audience questions at the end, about 15, 20 minutes. Um, so do make sure that you uh, have questions, because that would be great. Um, and that's it, I think. Yeah, thank you for coming out. Um, also, when we do the questions, actually, if you make sure that you wait until the mic comes to you before you speak, uh, because we do record all of the events. Okay, I think that's all the boring bits out of the way. So, folks, if you could please join me in welcoming fulsomely to the Edinburgh International Book Festival, the poet, the playwright, and now the memoirist, Lem Sissy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> that was nice, wasn't it? It's a nice welcome. Lem, thank you so, so much. Um, it's such an honour to meet you and to also discuss this wonderful memoir. Um, so, the book, in case you don't know why you're here, is My Name Is Why, a memoir by Lem Sissy. Um, yeah. What a process. 30 years of fighting to find your records. Myself. And to find yourself. <laughs> no, as fighting well. myself, I mean. Uh, yes. Yeah. yes. What a process to go through. And obviously, you are somebody who has talked about uh, life and care for a long time in different forms, um, yeah. in poetry, in your uh, one-off play yeah. as well, and now in this book. Um, if you could, if I was speaking to your publisher earlier, and he said that during the process of writing, he did sort of ask you if there was one thing that you were trying to sum up, that you were trying to do, the message you were trying with to get book, across with this book, with what the, would it be? With this book? Yeah. Uh, this is the first... Uh, public reading, official public reading of the book. Uh, first, the first event at the Edinburgh Festival, which is quite incredible. Uh, is it quite incredible? Yeah, it is quite incredible. Yes. Um, <laughs> um, it, it, uh, I wanted to tell, I wanted um, to tell my foster parents and also to tell my, the parents, the, 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 the new families that I found, I wanted to, to tell them what happened, and um, if, if if family is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime, <laughs> if family is a set of disputed memories between one group of people over a lifetime, I sort of realized at 18 that I had nobody to dispute the memory of me. Uh, f for the previous 18 years of my life. And I then... Re I had a, an image, right, when I left at 18, and it was this. It's that you play... Uh, I, 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 I thought through metaphor. So you play squash. It's a very difficult game to play squash. And you play it, and you, 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 have to, you use muscles that you didn't know you had. Uh, you use muscles that you didn't know you had. You grow muscles in places that you didn't know you had when you play squash. And the ball comes back at really awkward angles and you, and you, and you, you have to reach for it. And it, 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 you, you start to understand your body and, 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 and the weaknesses in parts of your body that you didn't realize that you use in day-to-day -day life. It's a very full experience of the body um, squash. And at 18... 
the, the metaphor, the, 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 the thing that struck my mind is that squash is like family. It's a difficult game at times. It, 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 it contributes to your health. It gives you strange muscles in places you didn't know. You can be more angry with your family than you can with anybody else. More loving also, more funny. You're a personality to your family that you may not be in other places. And, and you grow muscles in places which are funny ticks. You, know, you have language that you use only within the family, only words that can be interpreted by that group of people. You are angry about something that you don't deserve to be angry about, but you'll carry it for the rest of your life. And you'll, you'll, you'll you know, the, I mean, on a tangential link, I'm sorry, I'm going off on one, no, but on a tangential link, on a tangential link, um, you know, you can be angry with a family member from something that happened in your childhood, and then later on when you're in, I have children yourself, you find yourself doing the same things that your father did to you, and that you held against your father for all of your freaking life. The privilege of family and the proof of relativity is that you never have to call your father up and say, I'm sorry, I've just done the same thing that you've done. The privilege of family is that you don't have to say sorry and that you don't have to forgive. In fact, you can build your life against it and pretend that that is not relativity. When I left care at 18, I realized I had I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year. And it was like watching other people play squash and grow muscles and then get married to people who saw that muscle pain. And they were like, oh yeah, and you, so you walk like this because of your squash game. And you need somebody who also walks like that, you see. And you're both like, are you all right? Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. And you lock in. And then you spend a lifetime knowing this muscle strain or this, or working through it. And I realized at 18 that I'd, and this is true, that I'd hit the ball and it wasn't going to hit a wall. It was just going to go straight out. And the only logical option is that those muscles would waste away beneath me you had to tell the story, basically, didn't you? The nature <laughs> you of family to. is like an exercise, like a freaking workout. Yeah. I said freaking, just for <laughs> That's absolutely fine. Uh, it, it is, I, I realised at 18 years of age that I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year. Right? That sounds mad, doesn't it? Hey, I went out at 18 years of age knowing that I didn't know anybody who knew me for longer than a year, and I knew that that would hurt me most on my birthdays at Christmas, because that's when it would be evident. Mm -hmm. That's when the evidence would show itself to everybody, uh, sorry, to nobody except for me. That's when I could go, yep, there is nobody, forever. How do you communicate to other people what you don't have? How do you communicate that an institution exacted that on you and had locked your files away and would not answer your calls. Within three years, I was, I had a double, they're doing this because of the book launch, by the way. <laughs> Just so you know. They're like, Lem's here. Did you hear his Desert Island discs? That's what, that's what they're saying. Scottish Dragoons playing Amazing Grace. He's an honorary Scot, they're saying. Well, that's a little debate. Should we split up into small groups to discuss <laughs> whether that's a relevant thing? And there you go. There's the joker. There's the, there's the, there's the audience um, dancer. There's the, um, the brain that doesn't stop trying to find purchase in, in connection through laughter. And, and I knew that that wouldn't suffice ever. So I knew that I was good at something, that I loved being good at something, but it meant nothing in that I was relative to nothing. So, uh, you know, I'm good at relationships. <laughs> oh. <laughs> Thank you so much. Um, so and, and there's a psychotherapist in the audience going, hmm, yes. 
I suppose, I mean, one of, one of the things that does recur throughout the memoir from the very, very start is that sort of, the sort of almost pathologizing of perfectly ordinary childhood sort of behaviors. Um, you know, nicking the biscuits yeah. or, you know, um, being boisterous in the classroom or, you know, um, having perfectly ordinary sibling rivalry with with, with my brother, with your brother, yeah. Um, and what struck me as I was reading it, and and I will admit, I I was in tears reading parts yeah. of it, while also just absolutely raging yeah. uh, at other parts as well, is that sort of pathologizing of ordinary behaviours that was happening that you didn't. You, I mean, you had no way of knowing that that's what what was happening in those early early days. Yeah. Um, it's all in the. It's all in the. In, 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 it's all in the book. The, mm-hmm. the, the proof of what happened is uh, is all I wanted. And um, and and. Uh, but it, it, it was still shocking to me to yeah. read. <coughs> and it's, <coughs> it's shocking to me now to read. I've got my headphones oh, on. Oh yeah, so you do. What the <laughs> hell am I doing <laughs> with them on? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Hang on. <laughs> Look, I thought it was a. I thought it was you. a style. No, it's not a thing. style thing. <laughs> it's ridiculous. I'm sorry. <laughs> Are you looking at me thinking, oh, it must be a thing? <laughs> it's a thing. It's, you think it, it's an urban thing. It must be. <laughs> not that. <laughs> Come on, the discussion about what shoes to wear before we came on is relevant. Go on. Uh, anyway, anyway. <laughs> so, I mean, you you were saying about the shock and the the anger of reading these files after, you know, 30 years of fighting. Um, I mean... Uh, um, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book about emotional... Uh, it's a book about emotional um, violence and, um, and institutional... Uh, uh, the w- I can't finish that sentence, but the worst thing you can do in an institution is to know that it can't serve its core purpose. Yes. When you know that inside an institution, you are, and if you are its core purpose, you're a threat. So the institution, in you being a threat, via being innocent, the institution will lay down a set of rules and will judge you whether you're good and bad within those rules. Um, now, it is the nature of childhood that you will be bad. That's the nature of childhood. But when a child in care, a threat to the institution as to, as to their pure innocence and need of care, then, then them being bad, which is a natural thing that a child will do, is seen as a threat to the institution. And therefore, we need rules to contain them being, from being bad. So from being their natural self, anybody who's got a child will know. And some people here have had children who've taken drugs, children who've, te- who've got drunk, children who've stayed out late at night, children who've sworn in the front room, children who've, who've threatened to run away, children who've said the most hurtful things to their parents that they would not believe that their, chi- their own child would say. A child in care does any of that and they are locked away they are told that they are intrinsically bad human beings. And they are not. And they never were. And worse still, they go into care traumatized. If anybody deserves to be bad, it is them. Being bad is a celebration of who they are. Running away from a children's home is what a child does when they feel insecure. Where the where the hell are they going to run to? Where are they going to run? They don't know where they're going to run to. You come into care for care. And you come into care traumatized, surrounded by a group of people who are telling you, you know the worst thing that happened to me when I was in care? They said, what do you want? How can we, you know, what do you need? I came into care for care, not to be asked to be an advocate, not to be asked to feed back to the machine. Speaking is a small part of communication, especially in children. People say they they want to give us a voice or give a child a voice. It's not a 
case of giving a child a voice so they can feed back to the system about what it is not doing. You expect a child to articulate that through a children's council, through an organisation, through a, a panel who can feed back to the social worker whom they went to for care. It's wrong. The system is wrong. Childhood is a celebration of innocence, of making mistakes, of testing your emotions. Even the most enlightened children's services do not get it. Every single child who's in care should have an improvised care around them. And it is possible if that is the aspiration. Yeah, I think it's fair. And I believe that <laughs> one day... I feel like I need to applaud that. <laughs> I did Absolutely. an interview with John Humphreys yesterday. Oh, he was in tears and I was in tears. Yeah. It'll be, I'll be guest editing the Today programme on Tuesday. Oh. And he said, he said, um, he said you're, a, you're, a, you're a crusader, aren't you? For, I'm not. I'm not a crusader. I'm not part of an organisation. I'm, uh, I'm not trying to get funding. Um, well, uh, no, I'm not trying to get funding. I'm not trying to get funding. You know, I set up a thing called the Christmas Dinners for Care Leavers, and it actually inspired the Christmas Dinners for Care Leavers here in Scotland. And but the central idea of the Christmas Dinners is that it is not an organisation, that nobody is the boss. How do you make something have incredibly high standards, uh, accredited kitchens, uh, um, uh, uh, referral forms for every young person who comes to the Christmas dinner? Um, how do you have all of those things and not, not have an organisation, right? 2013, there was one Christmas dinner that happened in Manchester. 2017, there were 17 Christmas dinners for care leavers between ages of 18 and 25 throughout the country. Total success. Everyone in every city sets up. It uses a, a, a model and it uh, 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 puts on the Christmas dinner for care leavers. And there's no organisation and nobody is the boss and there's no minutes. No minutes. That sounds great. <laughs> it's not possible, right? It is. I think you were going to share some of your of your memoirs. Yes, I was. Um, so, yes. So, if you, what parts were you thinking of? Well, I'd like to read uh, the preface, which is the. Mm -hmm. um, I've got to work out, you know, whether how I how I how I present myself when I'm doing this book. Does it feel sort of? I, I know somebody who writes from sort of trauma as well. That, that sometimes when you're when you're you want to get across a, a huge, wide social political point about your own individual experience, but also there is that, where, where do I draw the line? Is that kind of how you're no, feeling? Th yes, but yes, it is. But I, I also, I, I love an audience. Yes. You know, and I, and I, and I, and I'm, I, I love, I, I think it's a real, something to be really respected. And I, I, I think this book deserves a less a more sober mind uh, in me. Um, there are lots of points that I, I, I might make in this situation, for example, but that's not what this is about. This yeah. is my story. I, yeah. I, I didn't... I'm, does, that, does this make sense? Yes. Am I, am I, this is... I've been... I've been trying to get this out for ever since I left care. When, when I found my files, the last insert of my files is my request to see them at 18 years of age, where I had to... Uh, I'll preface. <laughs> at 14, I tattooed the initials of what I thought was my name into my... And do you know what the other truth is? And I'll re I will read it, but the other truth is, is that I, am, I know my poetry with, my audience, with the audience, but I don't know this. So the truth is, is what I have to do is just trust the process. At 14, I tattooed the initials of what I thought was my name into my hand. The tattoo is still there, but it wasn't my name. It's a reminder that I've been somewhere I should never have been. I was not who I thought I was. The authority knew it, but I didn't. The authority had been writing reports about me from the day I was born. My first footsteps were followed by the click-clack-clack of a typewriter. The boy is walking. My first words were recorded, click, clack, clack. The boy has learned to talk. Fingers were poised above a typewriter, waiting for whatever, whatever happened next. The boy is adapting. 
Paper zipped from the typewriters and into files. The files slipped into folders under the S section of a tall metal filing cabinet. For 18 years, this uh, process repeated over and over again. Click, clack, clack. Secret meetings were held. The folders were taken out, placed on tables, surrounded by men and women from the authority. Decisions were made. Put him here. Move him there. Shall we try drugs? Try this? Try that? After 18 years of experimentation, the authority threw me out. It locked the doors securely behind me and hid the files in a data company called the Iron Mountain. So I wrote to the authority and, and, and hand-delivered the letter. The reply informed me I had to write to customer services. So I wrote to customer services. Customer services replied to say that they were not permitted to release the files. The authority placed me with incapable foster parents. It imprisoned me. It, it moved me from institution to institution. And yet now, at 18 years old, I had no history, no witnesses, no family. In 2015, following a 30-year campaign to get my records, the chief executive of Wigan Council, Donna Hall, wrote me a letter. She had them. Within a few months, I received four thick folders of documents marked A, B, C, and D. Click, clack, clack. On reading them, I knew. I took the authority to court. How does a government steal its child and then imprison him? How does it keep it a secret? This story is how. It's for my brothers and sisters on my mother's side and my father's side. This is for my mother and father and my aunts and uncles and for Ethiopians. Thank you. Shall I read a bit more? If, yeah, if you'd like to, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, this is when I threatened to um, kill all of the family. <laughs> <laughs> this is the first time I'm going to read the report. Um, so there's lots of little reports in the middle of it. Each chapter begins with a verse. I do morning tweets where I try to describe how I feel and the sun and the, and the darkness. Every morning, about five o'clock in the morning, I wake up at five. I've always woke up like that. Um, the, my favourite is, how do you do it, said night? How do you wake and shine? I keep it simple, said light, one day at a time. <laughs> and you know, there are people who've been in hospital, people with cancer, people who have died. One woman um, who had uh, cancer asked for this. I wrote it out. She put it on her um, f- fridge. And, uh, and the next I heard was her son who read it at her funeral. Um, it meant, uh, there was a man re- recently who wrote to me, I write them every morning, sometimes they're crap. <laughs> and you know, that is the risk that writers take. A writer takes the constant risk that he, she, or they are crap. <laughs> so they're right on the front line. Don't ever think of writers as soft. You know, they are the, m- I've just been speaking to Melanie Reed the uh, writer from The Guardian, an incredible human being. And, 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 to, and to tell you how hard writers are, as in strong or as in something, something magical, is to, um, is to just, in your own family, the things that don't get talked about, wait for Christmas dinner and then talk about them. <laughs> you won't. Writers do. They risk everything. The thing that the builder, the big builder who builds the houses, the police officer who, who, who protects the world, the thing that they can't talk about, that they won't talk about, that would blow their world apart, that's where the writer goes to. That's what they risk every time they write on a piece of paper. Not just what they're saying, but the act of saying it. Um, uh, sorry. Uh, but I just don't like it when people think that writers are not, you know what I mean? They think writers are some sort of effect. You know, yes. Which they're allowed to be effects as well, but. Uh, uh, 
Chapter 5, smouldering embers in the sky above. Uh, anger is an expression in a search for love. So this is the report from the social services. I called to see Norman today, the families just having returned from their holiday in Scotland. Mrs Greenwood was upbeat. It seems just this morning Norman repeated what he had been doing most mornings while on holiday. He is getting up in the early hours. Still do that. It's amazing to see a record. I never... <laughs> to see a record that I got up early in the morning tells me something about me getting up in the early in the morning now to do my tweets. You know, family is about memories that you can dispute. The act of dispute solidifies the memory. I'm not saying disputing is right. I'm saying it's, it is the nature of family. You did this. No, I didn't. Yes, you did. No, I didn't. You can solidify your different opinions and there is the memory. And I didn't have that. And I couldn't explain that because it's a difficult thing to explain. Um, I've been saying, doing, getting up early in the mornings, blah, 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 while getting up early in the mornings and eating sweet foods, particularly biscuits. <laughs> he has eaten as many as two packets. Norman says he is sorry for his behaviour, but cannot promise not to do it again. Because <laughs> I had to be truthful. Because Christianity said you had to be truthful. Eight years old, for the record, I did steal biscuits, but not two whole packs. The exaggeration would come back to haunt me. What I did was this. I stole biscuits from the tin, and then I rearranged the biscuits in the tin in a stacked roof column system <laughs> to hide the fact I had stolen them. Genius. <laughs> One holiday in Scotland at my granddad's home, uh, the family left me in the cottage as punishment for lying about stealing some cake. Sarah, Christopher, David and Catherine walked down the hill to Loch Inver and I thought I'd been locked in my room, but the door was open. I sobbed my way downstairs. The rich smell of silver birchwood from the embers of the fire filled the front room, wiping tears from my face. I saw on the table a half-cut ginger cake. The tears evaporated, <laughs> replaced by butterflies in my stomach. Maybe I can have a piece, I thought. If I cut it in exactly the same way as it was already cut, then no one will notice. I've taken a slice. Genius. And so I did. My cavity was much cleverer than that. Um, the cake tasted so good that I figured one more slice wouldn't do any harm at all. There were no witnesses, but then there was only one suspect. Um, it tasted so good, so I did it again. Uh, and to this day, I don't know why I got into this habit of stealing biscuits and bits of cake, but I did. They told me I was devious. The problem was that my first instinct was to say, I didn't take the cakes. I hadn't considered that the reason they had left me in the cottage in the first place was as a punishment for stealing cake. <laughs> Still, I denied that I had stolen the cake. Macavity would have had more guile and more style. Soon enough, after another hour in the bedroom, I realised that I had to admit to taking a cake. What I didn't realise was the significance of my transgression. The lies worried them more than the theft. This habit of stealing cake was the crack in the dam. There was something bad in me, something I didn't understand. Don't look at me with those big brown eyes, was the strange refrain my mum would shout at me. I didn't understand what she saw. If I argued that I didn't know what she saw, then would I be lying? How could I see what she and my foster father saw? Back at home, the front room was where I was punished. Same place we entertained visitors, same place the books were, same place the social worker would sit. The leather sofa was polished to perfection and smelled of pledge. Stealing cake and lying about it was an indication that the devil was working inside of me. The front room was where I was caned. I loved the normal stuff, the middle room, where we mostly lived and watched the clangers and crackerjack on the TV. The files tell a different story, though. 
a story narrated by my foster parents and filtered by the social worker. Within three years, I will be reported, it will be reported that I threatened to kill the entire family, except for Helen. I'm dying to tell you what that's about. What, what? Can I tell you? Yeah. Because it's in the book. Yeah, well, but I've read it. Maybe books, I shouldn't so tell people. Shall I tell them? Tell them, okay, yeah. Okay, right. Yeah, Do you want to hear? Tell them. <laughs> so I'm in my bedroom, right? I'm a kid. This is really great. I'm really pleased to be writing this book because I've got relativity with the memory. Mm -hmm. Because in the report, it says, and uh, the report's in the book, you know, take Lem away. He has threatened to kill all of the family except for Helen. Very specific, isn't it, that? So I'm an I'm a 11-year-old kid, and I, I threaten to kill all, like some kind of Rambo child, to kill all of the family except for Helen. This is a family that I've been with since I was three months old. This was my mum and dad. This is the people who taught me to say mum and dad, who told me that I was with them forever. And that my mum, my birth mother, was a bad person for leaving me. It all fitted. The narrative was perfect. This is who they are, and this is who I am, and they are my mum and dad. I've been fighting with my brother in the bedroom, Christopher, and, um, and I'd said to him, I'm going to kill you. My sister, it's obvious, my sister had gone downstairs and said, Lem's threatened to kill Chris. And that's what that is. Tell me a boy that has not said to his brother who's a year younger than him, I'm going to kill you. Yeah. But what I didn't say was, I'm going to kill the entire family except for Helen. <laughs> that didn't happen. Never has that happened since. I didn't go into children's homes threatening people. So that exaggeration, very slight, that then gets reported to the social worker, that then becomes a case in my files against me, is the same as the exaggeration of two packets of biscuits. I didn't steal two packets of biscuits. I had a system. <laughs> but that deliberate exaggeration to the social worker to show the hell that my foster parents was going through was what that was about. The hell that my foster parents was going to, it was this. They'd had three children. The third was an accident, Helen. Uh, and that's what she called her. And, and I, I, the, I, I, I was the fall guy for the family. Anybody who's got a series of kids knows that one of them is often the fall guy. And you'll show them up against being the fall guy. Every family has its fall guys. There's a quote in the book that, that stuck with me about um, a foster child will show the cracks and or, or expose the faults. If there the is faults, a crack in the relationship of the it, yeah. family, which there is in all families, yeah. that's the nature of family dysfunction is the heart of all functioning families. And if it wasn't, Christmas dinners would be easy. <laughs> Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. And the thing about a child in care, because outside of the dysfunction, is the PR company of family, by the way. The PR company of family starts at school when you say, hey, don't you say anything about my mum. Don't you say anything about my dad. Your dad might be beating the crap out of you, but that's the deal at school. Don't talk about my... The PR company goes from there to Marks and Spencer's adverts at Christmas. And an idea that family is not, does not have dysfunction in it. That's the, that's the, that's the, that's the, that's the deal breaker. Dysfunction is at the heart of all functioning families. The problem with a child, when they come into a foster child or a child in care, uh, or a they put the pressure because they're another person. By the way, having a child puts pressure on the family as well in exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. Exactly the same way. Um, and often that child then becomes the fall guy for the dysfunction that's already in that foster family. And the, the, thing that's the worst thing about this is that that child will then take the blame. It's easy. It's easy. We've got a whole narrative. We went out and we saved this little child and he put so much... He was just too much. He was too challenging. I interviewed a trans girl two days ago from Wigan. Incredible foster mother. 
a trans girl, a, trans, a, tra, a boy called Jay, who'd been fostered five times, and on the fifth time, it was, they were going to be with them for life. It was like an adoption. There's a term for it that she used. Now, do anybody know that term in England? It's, it's guardian something or other. But it's worth... Special guardianship, thank you. And it's where, it's effectively adoption. The government doesn't have to pay any money towards the parents. They're with this child forever. As she became he, as in her teenage years, after four other foster parents, this couple of people said, we don't want that, and sent her back. And she talked to me about being with parents who wipe the memory of her and she was telling me what I felt at the same time as her. And thankfully, she's with a beautiful foster parent because there are many, many beautiful foster parents out there. My job isn't to counsel them. The idea of foster care is that it works. They work really hard, foster parents. But they must counsel each other, like any good parents would do. Um, yeah. I wonder uh, if... Um Sort of thinking about the book as well, and thinking about the, the testimonies uh, that other people. Oh, testimonies uh, that, in the book, yeah. yeah that other people. Um, you see, I don't know what this about. book is. You see, this is a personal Marvelous. book for me, but, but, but it's also what you're saying. Yeah. It's a testimony of others. Well, that's what I was going to ask about. I mean, particularly, I think, um, your account of your time at Wood End, which you describe as Orwellian, which I would say is also, uh, also Kafka-esque. Yeah, it I was. mean, it was, it was prison, yeah, it was. essentially. Um, By the way, I proved all these things. I took the government to court before I did this book. Yeah. So, so this, is not, this is not a th theoretical bridge that I'm trying to find to the wider community. I have proved this legally, emotionally, they stole my family, they locked me in, they imprisoned me, they changed my name. They give me to inadequate, incapable, long-term foster parents. <clears throat> have, pe have people written to you about their experiences of being in Wood End as well? You sort of, uh, <clears throat> people write to me all the time, yeah. mm -hmm. <clears throat> and I will write back to them and say, look, speak to my agent, because I, I like to... <laughs> 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 I know that one of you doesn't like me. <laughs> One of you is just like, <laughs> oh, no, no, that's too much. I'm not ready to laugh. <laughs> Sorry. Uh, yeah, people do write to me, and I, am, I don't pretend that I can give people what I can't give. I'm not yeah. pretending to be a psychotherapist. I'm not trying to be a, the answer. I am asking questions, that's mm -hmm. all. Um, you know, the greatest thing that I did was get therapy. My, my, this isn't therapy. Writing isn't therapy. Speaking about it isn't therapy. <clears throat> Otherwise, there'd, no be, there'd be no industry of therapy. Otherwise, I could just sit with a book and say, I'm not feeling good today. <laughs> you know, you, you're belittling therapy by thinking that this is it. If I was to do this to you, if I was to exact my various angers on the audiences, that would be unfair, unproductive, and quite dangerous. Mm -hmm. Perhaps one final question from me before we go to the audience for, for their questions. Um, I think it would be safe to say that um, even if I hadn't been aware of who you were before I read this book, one thing that would have stuck with me is how music and poetry Damn, and writing yeah. was an, such a hugely important escape and also a means of power um, for you while you were in this impersonal, uncaring system. Um, and I mean, I mean, I'll and your early idols as well. Yeah. Um, and how important they were in terms of understanding who you are. Yeah. Too. Yeah. Art saves lives. Literally saves lives. Saves lives, man. It and, it, and it won't. You know, it doesn't hide. The truth will will out, however unpalatable it may be, and how it may not fit with uh, any institutional ideas of, of how. A human being can do. Art is how we translate the human spirit. That's why you have art in religions. Mm -hmm. That's why uh, people sing. That's why we read poems at funerals or at weddings. You know, we need some bridge between the spiritual, the physical, the past, the present, the future. Something that's something that uh, lifts us to a higher place. That that that, that celebrates our humanity. 
that, that, um, that is not fearful and not frightened. You know, poetry does that. It is a warrior for the human spirit. It is Nan's shepherd and it is, it, is, it is the living mountain. What's the book called? Yeah, it's the living mountain. It's nature writing. John Burnside said that metaphor is as close a human being can get to their environment. Think about that. Your Bibles, your Korans, they're all written through metaphor of nature. Metaphor is as close a human being can get to their environment. What a powerful thing to say. Tells you everything about Nan Shepherd about why we, why we look at statues, why we read books, why we listen to music, why, why, yeah, it's beautiful. Absolutely is. I mean, I'm very biased as a poet myself, but yes, I absolutely agree. Um, there is so much in this book that I could ask Lem about. It is a, an incredibly compelling account, um, and it's very, very powerful as well. Um, there's a quote from the back of it by Benjamin Zephaniah that, that I think really sums it up. The most amazing thing about this book is that it's not made up. This actually happened. Um, I would urge you, if you have not, to obviously go and buy a copy uh, after the event and there will be a signing too. But we're going to come to audience questions now, so we're going to get to see the whites of your eyes, which is great. Um, so bring the, bring While the lights up. we're talking about audience, yeah. can I just say one thing? Of course. Fiametta Rocco. Now, Fiametta Rocco is here and she is on the board of the Edinburgh um, Festival side, an incredible woman, but also is... is um, on the, uh, one of the three people who selected uh, <laughs> me uh, for the Pen Pinter Prize, which is an incredible prize. And I'll be delivering a speech at the British Museum, British Library. And I'd just like to thank Fiametta publicly and uh, give her a round of applause. And, um, I don't know where you are, but... Um, you don't get a chance to thank people for doing things for you. Um, you can know. I ask the, the, the tech, sorry, could we have the lights up just a bit more? I'm kind of struggling to, or maybe these ones down a wee bit because I'm struggling to see people. <laughs> okay, great. I um, can we, see you. We've got a you. question from the lady down the front here first. Have I just shouted at you for an hour? Are you all right? <laughs> Are you all all right? <laughs> Good. Good. Okay. Hello. Um, my question is, I, I think that... Um, one of the most important social services is for people to put themselves forward as potential foster carers and adopters. Yes. I wonder what you think about this. And do you actually actively promote fostering and adoption? I've just, um, I, I've just done a program. I've, if you listen to the Today program on Tuesday, um, you will hear me promoting fostering and meeting some incredible foster parents as well. Um, I believe in terms of adoption, I believe it's the greatest thing that one human being can do for another. And that is because a child will test you politically, financially, spiritually, socially, on every level. And anybody who's got a child knows that, you know. A child will test everything about you in, within their 18 years that they're with you. That's the nature of what a child does to a parent. Um, and therefore, adoption is the greatest thing that a human being can do for another, period. And therefore, abuse in adoption is the worst thing that a human being can do for another. Now, I believe in fostering and I believe in adoption, but when it works, it should work. So that's the good thing. If it doesn't work, we have to look at the one that doesn't work. You can't look at a young child who's fallen out of a window, who's on the floor with broken legs, and say to them, well, lots of other people are walking. You've got to look at the child with the broken legs and say, how can we help you? Do you understand? Adoption should just work. And for anybody it doesn't work with, we have to look at who's the, who, where the damage is. I'm sick of like the, the, the lobbying of some fostering organizations that are like, don't talk, about, don't talk bad about it. I'm not talking bad about fostering. I'm saying, are you telling me that this didn't happen because your institution is looking for funding from the government? So I do believe we need to be critical because lives are at stake here. Okay. Um, 
Please do applaud if you want to. Please, spontaneous applause is great. And um, there's a question from the man down here. Um, if you've got questions, just sort of put your hand up and I'll catch your eye. Can I just say also that foster, there are times when fostering does not work, right? And I am not blaming the parents for it not working on all occasions, and that is really important. Um, things do fall apart. Glenn, uh, your story about the system for stealing biscuits reminded me of a, a bad boy, age four, visited my house and uh, found a bar of chocolate. And rather than stealing a square, he just nibbled it round the edges. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> I thought that was, was brilliant. <laughs> <laughs> my question is about... Um, That's just great. <laughs> but, I, you know, I did not know this. I mean, I thought it was something that was evil in me. Yeah. When I went into care, I didn't know that the, the, the biscuit... I had to... Remember, I went in at 12. So I had to wait till I was uh, in my 20s, 25, 26, for people to say, no, Lem, that, that's what happens. Yeah. We all do that. In fact, in my 30s. Yeah. So my question um, relates to your statement um, that writers say the unsayable. Yeah. Which, with respect, I think maybe contradicted by your other statement that in a family you don't have to say you're sorry. Yeah. I wonder if no, you'll that's accept the beauty that. Of family. Yeah. Would you accept there are occasions when one of the unsayable things you want to say is, I've been an arse, I'm sorry, please <laughs> forgive me. I, I, you know, this whole saying sorry, sometimes I, th I mean, I can contradict myself. Sometimes I think that secrets in families are actually what hold them together. They may be the most frustrating thing on earth that your dad never talks about where he was when he was a kid or that your mum won't ever go down a particular street or to a particular park or a particular, you know, you know she doesn't want to talk about it. Sometimes those are the things, the wisdom that can be held inside of a family is we don't need to talk about this right now, you know. But I do believe that there becomes a generation it could be 10 generations down the line, and there will be one child, doesn't make this child better than the others, by the way, who opens her eyes and says, there's something wrong, I need to go back and find out what it is. And that will happen at some point in the future. But in the present, sometimes it's better not to talk about the war. Do you know what I mean? Not to hurt the mother who's like, no, I, I don't want to go there. And you may know that your mother had all kinds of behaviours, never really went out of the house, cleaned thoroughly everything, to an inch of its life, you know, but that's, that's how she had to hold it together. You know, we need to respect and uphold that as well. It's, it's, it's interesting, isn't it? Yeah. You know. Okay, we have a question from the And by the way, I know all of these Sorry. things through not having a family. And I wouldn't wish it on my worst enemy to know what I know about family through not having it. That's why I wrote this book, so that my family could see what it's like. Yes. Hi, good evening. Hello. Uh, thanks so much. It's really interesting what you have to say, and you are really brave. I'm sure you're used to talking about all this, but, I mean, it, it's really good to hear. Uh, as someone who's been in care myself, um, I'm really interested to know if the legal process is worth going down, because probably... Are you kidding me? You know, is it worth... Like, is it worth did, going? What did you get from it, though? I got £100,000, jeez. <laughs> I mean, I had a very... I was, I was... How could I prove you stole my name, you stole my family, you imprisoned me as a child, you, you denied me of my own mother, and then you let me go and you explicitly said, give him nothing. How can I prove that? So the things I had to, so I approached, once I got the files, I was like, right, and I actually got apology from Wigan as well. I was like, thanks for the apology, and now I'm going to take you to court. And I know that it's not your fault, and I know that you work for the institution, there's nobody who's there before. Fine, I have the proof. I have the proof. Yeah, well, I put it, it's, all of this is public record, it's all online, and he's the bomb. His name, my lawyer, is David Greenwood. It is the exact name of my foster father. <coughs> David Greenwood. Okay. And it took me three and a half to four years. So you have to be ready for that. And you have to also be ready for not winning. 
the psychologist who, who, interview, who interviewed me, he said, You're, you may not win this, Lem, so you better be in this for the journey. And it was beautiful. And I, I was in it for the journey, and I was okay. I just wanted somebody to be answerable. You know, as a result of my blog and the people that came out of the woods, as Tishani Doshi said, the girls came out of the woods, it's a metaphor for all people coming out of the woods. Um, I forgot what I was saying. Um, people came out, uh, yeah, in my blog, and they said, and they've got worse stories than me about abuse, about pure uh, abuse. Um, and therefore, the police started an investigation called Operation Milan uh, into Wood End Assessment Centre. And I didn't care whether the police, and that wasn't, my, that wasn't my, you know, class action. I wasn't part of that class action, a very specific thing. Uh, and I, I wonder whether you should go for a class action. You should go for specifically. What is it about your story that was where the abuse was? Be very detailed because you are very detailed, because your life and your childhood is very detailed. Um, but uh, I was more pleased that they had to be answerable to something. It didn't matter to me whether Operation Milan became something. It mattered to me that the police knocked on their door and said, what were you doing in 1974 to this young man? I want people to be scared. You know, there are people out there who are saying, well, these kids shouldn't have rights, really, you know. We don't know what to do with them. Yeah, your whole system is a mess. Hi. Possibly. <laughs> I've got a question from up the back now. And by yeah. the way, I know some great, incredible social workers. And I think I could not be a social worker. We need social workers. I am not against social workers. In fact, I am for social workers. And I am for the social services. They see things that I could not see. They see abusers lie. A social worker knows the liars there and is thinking, how can I prove that I know that you're lying? Not just my gut instinct, although gut instinct is really important. And it's the one thing that's taken away slowly from a lot of social workers. They're not allowed to use it. And yet, it's a central tenant of what it is to be in a family. Social workers are incredible. They're heroes and heroines. And you know what? We spend our time putting them down. It's because they, they draw a line. And no family likes a, a line drawn. It's very easy to hate social workers like it's easy to hate kids because they show the dysfunction at the heart of all functioning families. And that makes them a threat. Yes. Yeah, yeah, thank you. Uh, thank and you. another thing. No, 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 I'm sorry. No, no, come on. Come on. Sorry. Uh, sorry. <clears throat> uh, thank you very much for sharing your thoughts today. Uh, I have more of a request than a, than a question. Uh, I went to the University of Manchester and I, you know, I saw your poem that we have in the university plays written yes. and it's beautifully uh, written and you know, as you say it, it's so beautiful to say thank it. Thank you. And I was wondering if you could share a poem today before you leave uh, as a request, if that's possible. Thank you. Thank you. I'll oh. thank you. Oh, yeah. <laughs> Um, you said you, what they were thinking. How would you, yeah, I was, I was going to say, how would you feel about finishing with a poem? But yeah. I think we've got time for, yeah. um, so we've got about six minutes. Do we think we can yeah. fit in like uh, one more question yeah, perhaps? Yeah, there fine. was a question from the lady down the front um, here. So. Yeah. I'm just getting my book. Yeah, yeah that's great. <laughs> I was going to wear lady them. Here. Do you think they. No, I didn't know. And Sorry. then I was like, well, they're probably a Radio 4 ish. You know, would these be working? <laughs> Are these literature festival, you know? <laughs> For the first squash game. For the first squash game. Very topical, topical. <laughs> okay, so we have one more question from yourself um, and then we'll finish with a poem. Um, I'm actually really glad that the guy up the back asked for a poem. Actually, cause... a girlfriend once said that to me. <laughs> she said, we'll finish with a poem. <laughs> <laughs> That was quite funny, I thought it, so I said it. Yes. So, um, thank you very much for writing the book. 
Um, I listened to Benjamin's Zephaniah last week at the Edinburgh Book Festival, and he talked about the d domestic abuse that he witnessed yes. as a child. Yes. And I think it's super important that what's being written is about the reality, and sadly the reality in Scotland today is there are still children who are having to deal what you had to deal with. Yeah. It's an uncomfortable truth, but I'm gonna put that out there. But I want to say thank you very much from the bottom of my heart. I was born in 1967, same year you were born. Um, I wasn't put in care, but my older brother was, and I only discovered him by opening a box when I was 23 years old after having my first son and finding a letter from Ayrshire County Council telling me that her son was now Andrew and had been adopted, and that was it. Yeah. Um, but we grew up in a family that um, was uh, basically very violent. Yeah. You know, it was constant violence, or there was a threat of violence all the time. Mm. But late 60s, 70s, even into 80s, the rule was you tell no one. That's right. What happens between these four walls is our business. Stays in the four walls. So thank you, Lem Sissy, for going public, for writing the book, for talking on Radio 4, for putting it out there, and hopefully a child who's going through this can read your story. I want children to be able to like sort of speak up, and that's the thing that happens. Children are silenced. Mm. They're, chi mm. they're si silenced mm. by their parents, mm. by corporate parents. Mm. Thank you. Mm, thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Well, folks, we probably don't have time for any more questions, I don't think. But I think what we'll do, given that we're going to finish with the poem, I'll do the house, the boring house stuff again okay, at the can end. Can I just say something? Uh -huh. I, I wish, I don't think it's boring. I, just I was thinking that, you know. Oh, we, thanks. We, you know it's what I mean? necessary. It's I necessary. I know, but I don't think it's boring. Well, I try and put a bit of zing in it. No, I know, I'm because a, people ask. working. No, but there's <laughs> got to be a way. There's got to be a way of including this turn your mobiles off, blah, blah, blah. I mean, it's a sort of way which is. Because it's, it's funny. Anyway, sorry. I, I just. Anyway, putting on my teacher voice. Um, so how it will happen is we're going to go out on a massive, massive round of applause because Lemon's going to perform a poem and we're going to be full of rapture and joy and inspiration. And um, <laughs> then we are all going to go to the bookshop and there's going to be a big, massive queue where you're all going to grab this fantastic book, which is published by Canongate. I should have said that at the book start. Sorry, it's the is first it your first book? Yeah, book it's signing the first for book this signing one? for this. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's so it's you're all very, very special. I want and, lots of pictures of it. And yeah, that's what we're going to do. So we'll have before you perform your poem. Yeah. A huge round of applause and thanks to yourselves for being an amazing audience. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. Thanks, Ken. Thanks, man. Thanks. Well, I guess, uh, I, you know, what's beautiful about this is that poems that I've written will make more sense now. Like, I wrote my poems, they were flags in the mountainside. I was here then. I felt this now. And now that you see this, you'll see the poems in the light that they deserve to have. This is incredible. Um, so this is a poem called Suitcases and, Mo M M Suitcases and Muddy Parks. Um, <clears throat> it's like I've heard, yeah. Um, you say I'm a lying child, I say I'm not. You say there you go again. You say I'm a rebellious child, I say no, I am not. You say there you go again. Quite frankly, Mum, I've never seen a rebellious child before. And when my, and when my mate said, race you through the park, you know, the muddy one, I didn't think about the mud. I didn't think about the mud. I didn't think about the mud. When you said, why are you dirty? I could hear the anger in your voice. I said, I raced my mates through the park. You said it was deliberate. I said, I didn't. I mean, I did. <laughs> but it wasn't. You said I was lying. I said, no, I'm not. You said, there you go again. Later, in the dawn of adolescence, it was time for my leave. I, with my suitcase and social worker, 
you with your husband, we walked our sliced ways. Sometimes I would run back to you like a child through a muddy park, adult achievements tucked under my arm. Then I'd explain them with a childlike twinkle in my eye, thinking any mother would be proud. But your eyes, desperately trying to be wise and unrevealing, reveal all. Still, you fall back into the heart of the same rocking chair, saying, there you go again. And I did go. And I have gone. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Find out more about the Book Festival at edbookfest.co.uk and keep up to date on events, booking information and more by following us on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Just search at edbookfest. The Edinburgh International Book Festival takes place every August in Charlotte Square Gardens.